Bible, Exodus chapter 33. We're looking at verses 1 to 6 and then 12 to 23. So you're ready to head out the door and you've got your keys, you've got your wallet or your purse, you've got your phone, but did you ever forget to bring the most important thing? I've done this. Maybe I needed to uh, mail a package at the post office. And as I'm getting ready to go, I think, oh, you know, that's near the grocery store. There's a few things we need to pick up on the way. So I go and I find my cloth grocery bags and I find some bottles that need to be returned. And then I think, oh, and there's also a check I need to deposit. I'll swing by the bank on my way. So I go and I find the check and I endorse it. And I head out the door and I get to the post office. And what do I realize? I left the package at home. (laughs) Well, today's passage is a warning to us not to make that mistake in the spiritual realm. Particularly, it's a reminder to us not to forget the importance of God's own presence, which, as we'll see later for us today, is the Holy Spirit. And so our, B, our key biblical truth for this morning, if we were to boil down this passage to one sentence, is this. If we forget the Spirit, the journey is pointless. We want to focus on this topic over the next few weeks. Um, In fact, Greg Howe began looking at it with us last Sunday because as I've talked to different people about our church and about where we're going as a church, what our strengths and what our weaknesses are, one theme that has bubbled to the surface more than once is this one, that an area that we need to continue to grow in as a church is being spirit-sensitive and dependent. First, being spirit-sensitive, learning to rely not on our own wisdom alone, but seeking to have our spiritual ears and our spiritual eyes open so that we're aware and, and sensitive to how God's Spirit is leading us. Second, also being spirit dependent, learning not to rely on our own strength alone, but seeking rather to be prayerful and dependent and expectant, realizing that God can do far more for us and through us than we could do by ourselves. And and that that's what God wants to do, because God wants to show his power and his glory in us and through us. So being spirit-sensitive and dependent. Now, I'm the first to to admit that I need to grow in this area. You see, I like a good challenge. I'm a problem solver. And so my first reflex to any new challenge or opportunity too often is not to pray about it, but it's rather to roll up my sleeves and, and to think, all right, let's, let, let, let me think this through. Let me figure it out. How can we tackle this problem? I can figure it out. I'm smart enough. <laughs> and, and so too often, it, it's only as an afterthought that I remember, oh yeah, and I should pray about that too. <laughs> I wonder how God would have me handle this situation, or if I'm even the one who God wants to have handle it. So I'm the first one who who needs to continue to learn to be more spirit-sensitive and dependent. I'm the first one who needs the message of today's passage. If we forget the spirit, the journey is pointless. So let's take a look at this passage, and as we do, let me tell you how I'd like to go about it. Maybe you've seen the the telecommunications commercials, um, the ones which begin with with a close-up of someone on a cell phone, maybe in their driveway. And then the camera begins to pan out to show the whole yard, and then to show the block that the house is on. And then we see the whole neighborhood, and then we see the whole city, and then the whole continent, and finally the whole world. 
and the message of such commercials is simple. This company has the big picture. And if you use our service, we'll easily put you in contact with anyone in the world. Well, to understand this passage this morning, we're going to have to get the big picture too. But to do so, we're going to do the opposite of the commercial. We're going to start with the big picture and then we're going to zoom in until we're focused in on this one particular passage. So let's start with an overview, with a big picture of the book of Exodus where our passage is found. This book is an amazing story of of salvation, of God's love, and of transformation. It starts with a ragtag band of 70 refugees from the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who traveled the dusty road from the promised land in Egypt, or rather from the promised land down to Egypt to escape a famine that's in their own land. And then the book ends later with a mighty nation, hundreds of thousands strong, coming back out of Egypt, back to the promised land under God's leadership. Exodus is is the exciting story of how God accomplishes all this, and the story unfolds in three sections, or I'll call them chapters. The first chapter is about salvation and redemption. This is the story of of the powerful and merciful acts of God. This is... uh, a story which quickly explains that after Abraham's family came to Egypt, they became enslaved by the Egyptians and they suffered under Pharaoh's oppression. But it tells how God remembered them and God came to them and through Moses, God set them free. God used 10 plagues and the great miracle at the Red Sea to bring his people back out of Egypt. Then the second chapter of the story is about covenant and law. The Ten Commandments are the most famous part of the second chapter. Here we have the great smoke and thunder of of Mount Sinai as God comes down in, in such a powerful way that the people can barely stand it. And Moses goes up to the mountain and he receives God's offer to make a covenant or a treaty with the people. God promises that God will take Israel to be his treasured possession and will make them a blessing to the other nations and will grant them the the land of Palestine, the promised land, if they in return will commit to worshiping and obeying God only and and keeping his laws, which God is going to give to Moses. And the people gladly agree to this covenant and it's put into place and we move on to chapter 3. The third chapter is about the tabernacle and its furnishings. The tabernacle is a a luxurious royal tent which God has Israel built. And while this chapter is is full of of tiresome details of building plans and materials and and measurements, the, the events it describes, when you step back and think about it, are no less amazing than in the first two chapters. Because the great powerful and holy God of Mount Sinai has actually decided to come down and to live among his people and to be their leader and their king. We're going to focus in now on this third part of of the story because this is where our passage is found. This third chapter begins on Mount Sinai where God gives Moses the detailed pattern for the construction of the tabernacle. And it ends with a nearly ad nauseum repetition of the same details as Israel then faithfully constructs God's tabernacle exactly according to the pattern that God gave Moses on the mountain. 
Then at the very end of, of this third chapter, the entire story of Exodus ends on a note of great joy and blessing as God's presence comes and fills the tabernacle full of God's glory. But in between, in between the giving of the pattern for the tabernacle and the actual construction of the tabernacle and its filling with God's presence, in between is a critical section of the story about rebellion and forgiveness. In the center section, the Israelites commit the famous sin of the golden calf. And as a result, everything good that God has done for them so far in the story threatens to go right down the drain. God's people rebel against God and against Moses. They make a calf of gold and they start worshiping it and saying, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. Now, in that time and culture, when, when a people rebelled against a powerful king like this, and they break the treaty, they break the agreement that they have agreed to keep with the king, they can expect the king to come with a bad attitude and a large army to put down their rebellion. And, and this is what God plans to do. God is furious at how the people have treated him after he's loved them so tenderly and, and cared for them so powerfully, and they've both agreed to one another in this loving, committed relationship. And God tells Moses that he'll wipe them out completely and he'll start over with Moses. Moses, however, steps forward as a mediator. And in a series of four prayers, Moses intercedes on behalf of the people and begs for God's forgiveness. And, and Moses' prayers are so pleasing to God that by the time he's done, things are back on track. Mo Moses prays a first time, and God agrees not to destroy the people that he's just so powerfully redeemed from Egypt. Moses then prays a second time, and God agrees to send the people with Moses up to the promised land and to enable them to conquer the land and settle in it. And this is where things stand when Moses prays the third time, which is the passage we're focusing on this morning. So at this point, God has spared the people's lives, and God has agreed to help them get settled in the promised land. He won't leave them in the desert. But God is still threatening not to go with them. Now I say threatening because in verse 3, God says, I will not go with you. But in verse 5, God says, strip off your ornaments and I will decide what I'm going to do about you. So the, the doors open a crack. There's a ray of hope that this threat may be negotiable. Anyway, the Israelites are facing the real possibility that it will be them and Moses going it alone from now on, a bunch of former slaves in a vast desert with an old shepherd to lead them. And the loving and powerful God who broke them free from Egypt and has provided food and water for them in the desert, uh, who, who began making them into a special and significant people at Mount Sinai, who taught them how to live, who's promised to come and live among them, that God is now <coughs> threatening excuse me, to abandon them <coughs> because they have abandoned God. Again, let's put this in context. What's hanging in the balance here at this point in the story is whether the tabernacle is going to get built, whether God will be present with his people. The pattern, the plans for the tabernacle have been given, but before it could be built, the people rebelled. They started worshiping other gods, and as a result, God is threatening to cancel the tabernacle project. In other words, God is threatening not to be present with his people. 
the people know that this is devastating news. And so, as we saw in verse 4, they're, they're mourning, they're weeping, they've stripped off their ornaments. And, and Moses, meanwhile, heads off to God to pray for this third time. And as Moses begins in verse 12, his first concern is for himself. You see, Moses has the most to lose in this situation. When the golden calf rebellion had had happened, Moses was up on Mount Sinai with God, receiving God's laws and the plans for this tabernacle. And imagine what it must have been like to to be having this firsthand encounter with the amazing goodness and beauty of God. And imagine the way Moses' heart must have been captured with the idea that this amazing God who had made the heavens and and the earth would, would actually come and make his home with his people. And now all these hopes are being dashed. What's worse, God is telling Moses to to leave God's presence at Mount Sinai and go it alone with the people. Moses is to lead this this fickle people who are so rebellious that God can't go with them without wiping them out. And you want me to go, God? (laughs) Moses is devastated. As Moses starts to pray in verses 12 and 13, he basically says, God, if you care about me like you say you do, Don't leave me alone with the stiff-necked people. (laughs) And God graciously relents and answers Moses' prayer. Verse 14, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. This means I'll bring you to the promised land, and I'll allow you to settle in it and to enjoy a good life in it. I will give you rest. But question, is the you... In verse 14, singular or plural? My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Is God agreeing to go with all the people or just with Moses? Well, if you look at the original Hebrew, the first you is ambiguous, just like it is in English. But the second you is singular, not plural. It refers only to Moses. So we should hear it this way. God says, my presence will go with you. Uh, and the you is ambiguous, and I will give you, Moses, rest. So God is going to take care of Moses, but, but what about the people? God, or Moses wants God to clarify the ambiguity, and so in verse 15 he replies, Lord, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us up from here. Moses is pleading with God, God, if you aren't going to fulfill this wonderful plan for your presence to dwell with your people in the tabernacle, then don't send us up to the promised land. Moses would rather die in the desert with the Israelites than give up on God's plan to dwell among God's people. You see, the taste Moses had gotten up on the mountain, of what it would be like for God's presence to dwell with the Israelites must have been so good that Moses wouldn't trade it for any other sort of life. Moses could have agreed to go to Palestine with the Israelites with God's presence as his own personal helper. God had already promised to make sure Moses and the Israelites got settled in the promised land. And in the process, Moses no doubt would have become a successful military commander which would have left him rich and powerful and famous. But Moses doesn't want any of that. As far as Moses was concerned, it's got to be God's original plan or nothing at all. Moses is hungry for God's presence, not only for himself, but for all the people. 
We can see some of this motivation in verse 16. Moses gives God two reasons as to why God's presence in the tabernacle should go with the people. He puts it in the form of two questions. First, how will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? And then second, how else will, or what else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Moses realizes first that God's presence is the major visible sign of God's pleasure. God shows that he loves a people by being present with them. Isn't that how we show that we love? Moses also realizes second that without God's presence, neither he nor the people of Israel will be any different from any of the other nations. If Israel went on without God, no one would take notice of them or or see God in them. And and you can bet they would have quickly begun worshiping the gods of the Canaanites. And they would then just be one more nation among many. God's presence was and is indispensable and Moses knows it. And so Moses begs and pleads with God for it. And look at God's gracious response in verse 17. I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. God answers Moses' prayer, granting that the tabernacle will be built for God's presence to dwell in. And then Moses responds finally with his last request in verse 18. Now, God, show me your glory. Lord, show me your glory. Now, let me explain why I think Moses prays this because Before the rebellion of the golden calf, Exodus says that that Moses was up on the mountain in the presence of God's glory, and and Moses had to leave to go down and deal with the trouble below. And now that God has agreed to forgive the trouble, to, to forgive the rebellion, Moses is asking God to show him his glory again. Basically, Moses is asking God, let's pick right back up where we left off before this trouble began, as if the rebellion had never taken place. And God is so gracious that that God gives Moses even more than he asks for here, verse uh, 19. God promises to reveal more of himself to Moses than he's ever known or seen before. God says that, that Moses will see all of God's goodness and hear more about God's name, which is probably a poetic way of saying that, that Moses will see God's beauty and, and learn more about God's character. Moses will will learn that that God is a merciful and compassionate God who who shows grace to those to whom God wants to show grace. You notice God is ready to destroy the people and and all Moses has to do is ask and a new part of God's character is revealed. Oh yeah, I'm merciful and gracious too. Now that you've asked, I'm willing to forgive. After Moses had given up everything else and and thrown in his lot with God, our our passage ends with God rewarding him by giving him more knowledge of God than anyone else had ever received. And, And what Moses learns is how good and how merciful and how compassionate God is. Amazing. And what good news for us, too, that that God's presence doesn't have to be earned. It's a gift from a merciful and gracious God to people who don't deserve it. So now we need to step back from the story and and to ask ourselves what we can learn from it for us today. As Moses 
And the Israelites stood poised to begin an adventure with God in the promised land. So we stand poised on the edge of, of all that God has in store for us. As we seek to, to uh, let God work in us, let God work through us to transform us. To make us a, a community with a more vibrant love as we support and as we care for one another. As we, as we help one another to grow spiritually, to become mature, to be effective in fulfilling the callings and, and using the gifts that God has given each of us. And, and as we also ask God to make us more useful in God's mission. As God leads us into new and creative and exciting ways to spread God's blessing and the good news about Jesus in our communities and our neighborhoods. And the first thing that this passage has to say to us is that without God's presence, we as a church cannot hope to see more than a pale reflection of these things. Now, I'm not suggesting that we need to build a tabernacle in the parking lot. God isn't present with us anymore through tabernacles or temples. How's God present with us? Well, we've seen um, that uh, in the Old Testament, obviously, it was through um, tabernacles and temples. Um, but in, in the New Testament, uh, we who follow Jesus now, the New Testament tells us, are the temple that God dwells in. By his spirit. That it's through the Holy Spirit that, that God's presence dwells with us now. Um, and, and so what the passage in Exodus has to say about God's presence in the tabernacle applies to us today in relation to the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit dwells in our midst, then, then God is present among us and Christ is present among us. In the Old Testament, it was the tabernacle, it was the temple, it was the glory cloud. But, but only the priests could actually get close to God in the Old Testament. They went in on behalf of the people to God's presence. Then, if you continue the story in the t time of the Gospels, God was present with his people through Jesus Christ himself. Jesus walked the earth and, and anyone could talk with and, and even touch God. Wouldn't that have been awesome? The only problem was it was limited. You had to live in Palestine. And you had to be able to fight through the crowds to get close to Jesus. And he was only there for three years. In a way, we have something even better now. The restrictions, the limits have been lifted. Because since Pentecost, when Jesus poured out his spirit on all of his followers, we saw this last week as Greg looked at John 14 with us, God is now present with us wherever we are. Christ dwells in our hearts. Christ dwells in our community through the Holy Spirit, Christ's Spirit, so that God is now closer than ever. God is in our very hearts and in our very midst. And so all the more we should plead like Moses did, God, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. Because the message of today's passage is that if we forget the Spirit, the journey is pointless. If we settle for our own best thoughts and ideas and our own strongest efforts and resources, we settle for so much less than what God wants to give us. And we wind up being so much less than God calls us to be. How else will people know that God's pleased with us if the Spirit doesn't go with us? What else will distinguish us from all the other peoples of the earth? 
In The Lord of the Rings, uh, young Frodo, the hobbit, finds himself going on a long and a risky adventure. And before he goes, he's given some parting gifts by his uncle Bilbo. And, and one of them is a coat of mail, and it's made of a special metal called mithril. And Frodo figures, well, that might come in handy for protection. I'm kind of scared about this journey. So he wears it under his coat all the time as, as they set out on this journey. And, and none of his traveling companions know that he's, he's got it on. Along the way, later, they, they get to talking about his uncle Bilbo and the adventures that Bilbo had gone on and uh, the riches that Bilbo had gained along the way. And, and then one of uh, Frodo's traveling companions, Gandalf, remarks that the greatest possession, the richest treasure that Bilbo owned was a coat of mithril. <laughs> Evidently, it was worth more than the whole land of the hobbits and everything in it. And, and Frodo's eyes get wide. <laughs> he had no idea. He reaches under his coat, he, he touches the mithril. He had no idea the riches, the treasure that he had. Do you know what you have? Do I know what I have? Do we as a church know what we have? That's why as a church we, we need to seek to become more spirit-sensitive and dependent. Because without the spirit, the journey is pointless. So how do we do this? How do we become more spirit-sensitive and dependent? Well, I'll close just by telling you one way that I've been learning to do it. And that is to get in the habit of regularly asking myself two questions. The first one is, what is God saying to me? Or, or to put it another way, how is God's spirit directing me and guiding me? And then the second is simply, what am I going to do about it? How am I going to respond to the Spirit's nudgings and promptings and guidings in my life. I've committed myself both to, to getting in the habit of asking myself those two questions regularly and also teaching others to ask them too so that we can be a community where we help ask them to each other. And um, that's a big part of what we've been learning to try to do together in the sermon groups we've been doing as a church this past year and in some of the other discipleship groups we've been doing at CBC. Now, maybe you have other ways that are helpful for you um, to be spirit-sensitive and dependent, but if you'd find it helpful to learn more about that, hopefully we'll start another sermon group later in the spring, and you could ask me about that, see about being part of it. Let's pray. God, how amazing it is that you would choose to come down and dwell with human beings like us. And, and in some ways, we're, we're jealous of Moses and the Israelites who got to see a cloud and got to feel and hear the, the power of your presence that was a constant reminder to them that you were there. Your ways are sometimes more quiet and subtle with us. And yet when we look back at our lives and we see where we began and we see where we are, there's all kinds of evidence of your presence with us. Please make us more hungry, make us more aware, and burn into our hearts the, the realization that um, unless your presence goes with us, the journey is pointless. We don't ask because we are a people so pure and holy that we deserve your presence, but we only ask because you're an exceedingly merciful and compassionate God who finds a way, has found a way through Jesus Christ to come and be present with us, even though we don't deserve it. 
Come and be with us. Amen.